I was recently in Denver for the American Public Health Association's Expo. David Satcher, he closed with this phrase that I think couldn't be more perfect. He said, in order to eliminate disparities in health and achieve health equity, we need leaders who care enough, leaders who know enough, leaders who have the courage to do enough, and leaders who will persevere until the job is done. Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country that highlight what all we share in common in public health. Thank you for tuning in for this next installment in Share Public Health. I'm Shirley Orr. I am a partner in the work of the Midwestern Public Health Training Center. Um, My work takes me in a few different directions. I serve as Association Executive Director for the Association of Public Health Nurses, made up of nurses in public health practice at the local, state, uh, tribal, uh, and national levels. I also uh, work with the Public Health Accreditation Board, where I serve as an education specialist and work to uh, develop and implement some uh, educational offerings that uh, can hopefully advance the uh, public health national standards and public health accreditation. My name is Lauren Carroll. I'm a public health nurse three in the state of Alaska, and I'm working out of the Homer Public Health Center, which is a position about 220 road miles south of Anchorage. Um, as a public health nurse in Alaska, um, we focus on population uh, health and p- Public health nurses in Alaska um, typically work at three levels, and that would be systems change, community-level interventions, and individual client-based. But to, when I joined the section of public health nursing in, in the state of Alaska, um, it was around 2012, and a, a gal by the name of Rhonda Richmeyer was the chief of our section, another public health nursing hero. You'll, you'll pick up on a pattern here. And Linda Warman at the time, I believe, was working in the Fairbanks Public Health Center, probably as a public health nurse four or five. And then uh, shortly thereafter, Linda advanced into, I believe, the deputy uh, chief position. I might be wrong about that. But uh, when I took on my Homer position, which is my current position in April of 2014, uh, Linda was the chief of the section at that time. Um, so what it, one of Linda's um, piece of her legacy was she created and, and guided the section of public health nursing through a, a communication work group, but, which we ended up calling it an internal communication work group because it evolved after our work was done into an external communication work group. But the communication work group itself um, was really designed to do a few things, but the main thing was to increase the proportion of section staff who agreed or strongly agreed that that they've got a place to share their ideas um, and a place to put their feedback in regards to their practice and employment with the section. And that whole process of creating an internal work group also kind of set the stage for a number of our internal work groups that are structured 
to create and update our practice as public health nurses in the state. Alaska, I would say, has been, it's, it's really interesting in terms of the public health nursing leadership that has been present uh, in Alaska. I know as long as far back as I can remember when I first became aware really of the role through uh, what was then the Association of State and Territorial Directors of Nursing and is now the Association of Public Health Nurses. Um, the public health nurse in Alaska, I think her name was Elfrida Nord, I want to say, uh, who I didn't have the privilege of knowing well, but I knew certainly of her work and knew of her as a you know, phenomenal uh, public health nursing leader for the state. And then the ones that Lauren has mentioned, um, mentioned also. And I think you know, I'm interested in hearing more today, Lauren, about um, in, in our conversation, just about public health nursing practice in Alaska. It's very different um, and unique among the 50 states, I think. I know that there have been various initiatives over time to um, help public health nurses be aware of the public, of the opportunities in Alaska. There was a campaign I remember a while back where there were a series of videos yeah, she's a moving force still. She was uh, the section chief. I believe she began in, in around 1984, and she worked through 1993. And 1993 is a special year for us because that's when we celebrated 100 years as public health nursing in some form or other in, in the state of Alaska. And Elfrida Nord, in my mind, I, I didn't have the pleasure of meeting her either, but uh, it, it's my sense that she was not only a brilliant public health nurse, but also quite a historian as well. So she yeah. was kind of, I think, responsible for creating and following through with the 1993 100-year celebration of public health nursing um, in the state. So she had, she kind of spearheaded several documents that are still around in my drawer today and just pulled one out actually um, earlier this morning and, and read a quote and she said something about, um, you know, public health nursing today, which was 1993, is very similar to as it was in 1937. And I was like, oh my gosh, here we go. And she highlighted how, you know, fundamentally, we had the same approach in 1993 versus 1937. And I don't know the significance of 37 as opposed to say like 1893, but she said it's fundamentally the same. You know, and the fundamental piece that's the same is that we're working at the local level face to face with community members. And, and that's so true. Um, and, and then flipping through the pages year after year, you know, there's these decades and decades of history that we have. And, and there's a pattern there. One example might be in, in the 1940s, we really started to work a lot with uh, tuberculosis, especially along the coast and up and down. Uh, rivers, you know, to gain access to these mobile chest x-ray machines in order to help fight tuberculosis. Um, as it turns out today, we're still uh, working uh, with tuberculosis. I've got about five cases in my inbox I need to catch up on um, today. And so there are other examples too, you know, um, measles campaign, mm -hmm. looking to eradicate measles in the 70s and rubella looking to eradicate polio at, at one time. And, and then today you find our, ourselves on the radio um, and on the telephones talking to folks and listening to their thoughts about COVID vaccine, especially for kiddos five to 11 years old. 
it's really interesting when we think back and, and reflect on some of our earlier leaders. I also think uh, I had the opportunity to be in New York City about a year. Well, no, actually, it was more than a year ago because it was before COVID um, with my son. And I went to visit the house on Henry Street, which was the center of operation for Lillian Wald, who is credited with having started or really launched public health nursing in the U.S. And I knew a bit about Lillian, obviously, already, but I learned so much more there. And just looking at the displays there uh, at the center of the house, which is still open and houses some active community outreach work, uh, it was apparent to me that she was really, truly the champion of social determinants of health in that era. They didn't call them that, but her practice was for sure in the community Uh, But it was focused on housing and hygiene and having access to healthy and nutritious foods. And she also, I think, was pretty groundbreaking for the time in terms of reaching out and establishing some cross-sector partnerships. I remember reading about her engagement with a company. It was an insurance company um, that donated significant amounts of funds for the improvement of the Henry Street settlement, which was where her public health nursing practice was was centered in the Lower East Side of New York City. So, um, you know, it's, it's so interesting because I thought, you know, looking back, obviously there's been a lot of things that have changed in that time since 19, what was it, 1918 probably, but, you know, we're sort of returning to much of that now with, you know, a renewed focus, looking at um, causes beyond uh, those that can be uh, addressed, causes of ill health uh, that can be addressed or cannot be addressed through uh, through medicine or other kinds of interventions. So I just I think it's fascinating to to think about nursing practice and where it's come from, where it's come, and where it is now, and and where it's headed. So I guess in that vein, maybe we could just talk a little bit about what you see, Lauren, through your lens about uh, where the practice is headed. But I wonder if would you please just to sort of um, give us a little bit of background, tell us a little bit about your background, what drew you to public health, and maybe specifically what drew you to public health practice in Alaska? Oh, yeah, sure thing. You know, maybe I'll just make one quick comment about uh, Lillian Wald. You know, I'm not a historian. I'm just now becoming interested in history, but uh, at at a very slow uh, rate. But, you know, I think I was reading that Lillian Wald got her practice started in 1893. And, and we hold her up as not only a leader, but, you know, leader of public health nursing, which is interesting because Miss Philippine King, we hold up in Alaska as our first public health nurse who started her practice in 1893, the wow. same year. So it leaves me thinking, um, you know, these two leaders that were, you know, out there doing it in, in many ways or from a particular lens in the same way that we do it today. I wonder if there were several women across the U.S. Um, who also started around the same time frame. That's a you know what are the chances that yeah Alaska, that we had our first uh, we had our started in the same year? Fascinating. There's a thesis or a dissertation in there somewhere. What do you think? Oh, <laughs> thanks for planting that seed. I uh, I just <laughs> went back to school a year ago and I got two years to go. I've yet to determine what my big project's supposed to be. Uh, let's see, my start. Um, well, let's see, I, you know, I wasn't born or growing up with the sense of like, I want to care for people and I'm going to be a nurse. And that was never me. And 
you know, I, I'm not wired like that. I don't have that. I actually started professional healthcare in, in the late nineties as a firefighter, uh, EMT. So I did structural firefighter in, in a big suburb that, that fits right next to Kansas city, Missouri, a big metropolis area. So I got to see a lot of fire and, and uh, in codes and this type of thing, pre-hospital work. Um, and I was a firefighter during 9-11. So I went through all that with our brothers and sisters. And that, that was kind of a, a good time for learning and developing it as you know, a young man in professional healthcare. Uh, but the big thing about, um, for me, for fire EMS was I felt stuck geographically. You know, as a young man, I really wanted to see the world. I'd been to Mexico once and I'd been to Guatemala two or three times and I wanted to see more. You know, I'd never been to Asia at that point. Um, so I remember, you know, eating dinner with my uh, crew in front of the TV, which would, we normally did on shift because you never know when you're going to get a call. Um, and I remember it hit me all at once. It's like, I should be a travel nurse so that I can travel. And maybe uh, I can take these three-month stints and maybe I can get, you know, some uh, help with housing. It just seemed like a great idea. So my last uh, two and a half out of five years of fire, I went back to school full-time and got my bachelor's of science and nursing at uh, Research College of Nursing um, in Kansas City, Missouri. So I got my uh, nursing degree. Um, I quit fire. I sold my house, cashed out my retirement, and started to travel through Central America. And I returned back to uh, the house that I'd been in several times uh, for a couple of service trips uh, in Guatemala. And one afternoon, I was sitting there with, with the man of the house in the afternoon, drinking a cup of coffee. And uh, he was telling me, Hector was telling me, he's like, I feel sorry for the rich and the middle class because they're so preoccupied uh, with work. And then again, it, it hit me in this moment. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want to work on the floor. I don't want to do that. Um, I, I just wasn't feeling it. I continued to travel through Central America. Then I traveled through China for a while and ended up back in Kansas City where I started. Settled down for a couple of years and worked on a house. Um, and then I needed to get a job because um, I ran out of money work, working on remodeling this 100-year-old house. And I pulled out an old email from a public health nurse who I did a one-day rotation on for community health uh, component of my program. And I said, hey, Amy, are there any public health nursing positions open? And she's like, yeah, there are a few. Check it out on this website. And at that time, the Kansas City Health Department had an opening for uh, a 0.5 FTE for a refugee health screening clinic. And they wanted the other half of the position to open up um, create and open and run an adult and travel immunizations clinic. And I was very interested in the position because it was close to where I lived and uh, the pay was good. And I really wanted weekends and holidays off. I didn't want to work nights or, or weekends. So it's really important to me and still is. And I remember during the interview, they said, can you start a clinic? And I said, uh, yes, <laughs> I had no idea what that entailed. But I did remember um, I had a real hard time making it through physics in college. It took me two or three times. I got an F and then I got a D. And then finally on my third pass through physics, I, I got through it. But I remembered my uh, instructor was this Polish guy who was looking um, to get a job in the United States. And he told me this job. He was sitting in on an interview. And they said, are you an expert on lasers? 
And he said, yes. And then he spent the entire next week living in the library, becoming an expert on lasers. And so that stuck in my head and it kind of just came out. Um, so yeah, I worked there at Kansas City uh, Health Department for about five or five and a half years. That, that was my entry point to public health nursing. And then what about Alaska? How did you land there? Well, I guess the story continues. I was working public health nursing there uh, for over a half decade, uh, but I never really felt like I fit in Kansas City. You know, like I was gaining weight and I felt like I was moody and I didn't like my neighbors, even though I did want to like them. Um, I just was kind of having a hard time uh, for no particular set of reasons. Uh, eventually, uh, I handed off the adult and travel immunizations clinic to a new uh, employee at the time. Her name is Lisa Susanaga, who I, I continued to work with her for, for years and actually still do today in some capacity. But she came up to my office after I handed off the clinic to her. And she said, hey, Lauren, can you cover my clinic? I'm going on vacation. And I said, sure. And she went to leave my office and opened up the door and started to step out. But then she turned back around. And she said, Lauren, I'm so nervous. And I said, uh, how come, Lisa? I, I thought you were just uh, going on vacation with your husband, Iran. And she said, no, I'm actually flying up to Nome, Alaska. And I'm flying up there for a site visit and an interview for a public health nursing position with the Native Corporation. And I was like, wow, have a good time. <laughs> so she flew up there and she called me on the phone. This would have been uh, 2009. She called me and she's like, oh my gosh, Lauren, you've got to get up here. Everyone looks just like you and they talk just like you. And there's another public health nursing position open. And, and I had my resume kind of ready to go. So I faxed it up there um, and they flew me up a, a week or two later for a site visit and interview. And I remember flying into Anchorage and I was like, wow, this is beautiful. And then I caught the flight from Anchorage to Nome, which, which is a bush flight, meaning that you go off of the road system and go out to a different area, about six or 700 miles off the road system. And the plane itself was flying right past uh, Denali. And I looked at the mountain covered in snow and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't, I, I'm going to take this position. I knew there's a national shortage for nurses and there still is. And I knew that they would offer me a position. So at that point, I pretty much decided I was going to accept the position. But also, I had a window seat, but also the guy next to me on the left started talking to me. And this, to me, seemed abnormal. Because when you're flying around in the lower 48, people don't talk to you when you're sitting uh, on the plane. But when you get north of Seattle, it's customary or cultural to talk to the people next to you. So this guy started chatting me up. He's like, what, what are you doing at Nome? And, uh, and that was kind of a... A very welcoming thing that I was—I felt like I was kind of looking for. So I hit the ground in Nome. Um, they put me in a hotel, and I woke up the next morning, the day of the interview, and in a in a tour of the facility. And when I woke up, there was a blizzard that night, and some buildings on Front Street were buried, literally buried, in snow. So it was at that point I knew 100% I was going to accept the position for which I had not yet interviewed. <laughs> so that was kind of my, that's how I got to Alaska. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, it's been, a, I guess I would say without a doubt, it's been the best decade of my life. Um, but that first week uh, in Nome was, 
was quite a week. I remember going to one of the three grocery stores and I was standing in line, I had eggs and I had milk, kind of the basics, my first or second time in the grocery store at, at that point. And the person behind me was like, are you Lauren, the new mandolin player in town? And so the small town kind of vibe, which I was used to from growing up outside of a small town was very much in, in uh, Nome, Alaska, although it's it spread around quickly. So I had two people bump into me in the grocery store that already knew my name and they knew I played or at least owned a mandolin. And so I played more music with other people my first week in Alaska, Nome, Alaska, than I had my entire life. So I was off to a good start. And that's been about 10 years now. Is that right? Roughly that you've been there in Alaska? Yeah, I've got to use a calculator now. I guess it's uh, about 12 (laughs) years or so. Wow. Probably gone fast because it sounds like it's probably um, never a dull moment or every day different than the one before. I guess along those lines, maybe would you tell us a little bit about what your work is like as a public health nurse there? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I was up in Nome working for the corporation for about three years. One year of that was doing public health nursing as a TB, tuberculosis, a nursing, good nurse consultant. Um, because at that time, they were a grantee of public health nursing services and had been since the mid-80s. But then um, they decided, Norton Sound Health Corporation decided to hand back that public health nursing responsibility back to the state after just over 25 years. Um, it, I moved over to their critical care flight nursing program for almost a couple of years. And then I came back to public health nursing. But at that point, um, the corporation and the state were right in the middle of the transition of handing those responsibilities back. So as a public health nurse, I'm guiding a a small team of five or six folks um, to offer services in the same building. Um, So these were actually tribal employees who quit and then got a job in the state. But now it was a different organization. So there were brand new charts, um, a new set of service delivery. So this is a big transition. So beneficiaries or Alaska Natives would walk in seeing the same faces, uh, asking for services at the same place, um, but th- they were given in a different way. So I think the big example there was we uh, have a fee for service. And so we would uh, calculate the cost of service and ask them if they wanted to pay. This was a big change for beneficiaries after not only their whole life, um, but uh, their parents' whole life uh, was to access services without having to pay out of pocket or being asked to pay out of pocket. Um, So I did that for about 15 months, went home for a year, worked on a farm, caught up with my family. And uh, with the aim of coming back to Alaska, specifically Homer, Alaska, to get the same position in Homer that I had in Nome, which is a public health nurse three or, or what we call a team lead position. And then it opened up. Uh, So that's kind of how I got back to Alaska and how I got to Homer. That was April 2014. And the thing that's different about public health nursing in Alaska than my experiences of working for Kansas City Health Department as a public health nurse is that we work um, at three different levels. Um, As opposed to just focusing on individuals, we work with systems, uh, community, level interventions, and also work at it uh, with individuals for some safety gap services, which are usually um, surrounding communicable diseases. So what's it look like and feel um, for about the past 
20 months, we've been working 90 to 95% uh, with COVID. So that's uh, increasing access to vaccine. Um, a lot of public facing work like radio, um, podcast, that type of stuff with, with the aim of, um, you know, empowering folks to, to continue with mitigation efforts till COVID calms down. And uh, Homer is where you remain today. You're still in, in that role in, in Homer. Is that right? I remember yeah. seeing a gorgeous photograph that you sent last year. I think it was of a gorgeous area, snow covered. It was just phenomenal. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've been here in this position in place about seven and a half years and Homer is positioned about 220 road miles south of Anchorage in what we call South Central Alaska. And it, you know what we've done really good in Alaska in terms of public health nursing is um, recruiting folks from all over the nation who are excited about an adventure. And I would say all of healthcare in Alaska has done a really great job of rec- recruiting folks that are up for an adventure. Um, but, but we're still challenged to, to keep all these vacant positions up. Um, filled, uh, to say the least. So in the time you've been there, Lauren, I'm wondering, and you've, sp- you've spoken a little bit about this already, but um, as you think about public health nursing practice, and then you think about the public health 3.0 framework, I'm wondering what changes or transition or, you know, I don't know, evolution have you seen um, with regard to public health nursing as far as um, public health 3.0 oriented practice? Oh, that's a good question, Shirley. I guess, you know, one of the biggies that pops out to me is that the section of public health nursing hasn't always been working at a population level in, in Alaska. You know, that, that's real evident that a, a population focus is really pr- a pretty new thing. So having our start in 1893, and, and then we didn't achieve statehood or, or have statehood until 1959. Um, and, and then... Uh, we went through attempting to eradicate several vaccine preventable diseases. And then we geared up for HIV in, in the, in the eighties. Um, and then fast forward pretty close to today, we didn't start hearing the first um, news or criticisms about, Hey, you public health nurses, you need to stop competing for individual client based services because there are medical homes. And then in the outlying communities, there are community um, based, uh, village-based clinics that can offer primary care. So we started to hear the first news of, of that around 2004. And then in 2009 or 2010, we made the official shift to population-focused healthcare. So when I showed up here, for example, in 2014, there was very much the clear public perception. And at Homer, it's about 5,000 people, about 15,000 people in the area. It was very clear that the public thought that the public health center is where you go to have the public health nurse give you a shot. And so people love to come to public health nursing or the public health center to get a shot because the public health nurses were very skilled at it and are. Um, but also they didn't have to walk into a medical home or, or an ED, these places where maybe sick people go and you have to wait in a lobby next to sick people in order to get your well-child examination with immunizations. So there was quite quite a uh, a need for a, a shift in the public perception, and that took a lot of work. And you know, 
also when thinking about all of our public health nurses um, in the 80s and 90s, you know, they signed up for public health nursing because they love kids and they love families. So maternal child health was really kind of the heart and soul of public health nursing for a very long time. So what that meant was we had a significant proportion of our employees worked back in the day where that's all we did. And that was their skill sets. And so not only that, but we have the infrastructure um, in place to teach new public health nurses who come to us on how to provide those services. But in regards to population-focused healthcare, you know, we just don't have the training capacity or experience as an organization to train folks like that. So what it ends up looking and feeling um, can be look like a little bit exploring to discover or uncover what population-focused healthcare is. So that's a real challenge. But one of the main entry points into that has been um, our community uh, in line with uh, federal IRS was like, hey, nonprofit hospitals, you need to do a community health needs assessment if you want to uh, avert some um, taxes. So our nonprofit hospital in 2008 uh, asked the community, they said, hey, um, well, actually they asked public health nurses, how should we do this? And the public health nurses said, well, let's ask the community. And they looked at several different um, frameworks for conducting community health needs assessments. And they chose uh, a nature product called MAP. And it's simply a prescriptive framework for conducting a community health needs assessment. MAP stands for mobilizing action through planning and partnerships. Now, the thing about conducting a comprehensive community health needs assessment is it takes a lot of people and it takes a lot of different kinds of people to mobilize and empower a community to assess their own health. So that in itself is kind of where a lot of cross-sector collaboration is born. Um, but also it's where a lot of existing cross-sector collaboration um, can be highlighted. So we've had, you know, mental health and physical health um, and mental health, all those folks have been cross-sector collaborating uh, for years. But when thinking about a community health needs assessment, it, it can pull in other aspects of community health, like uh, the built environment, economic wellness and cultural wellness, um, things like, like that. So in regards to uh, making that shift from um, public health nurses are the people that give shots um, to more of a systems and community wide basis, the, the MAP framework has been real key for us to make that shift. So from that initial chaw back in 2008, um, what do you see today in terms of were some of the things that were priorities, things that the community identified as being really important to them? Are there some of those things that are still um, important, that are still priorities there in Homer? Oh, yeah, sure thing. I think that they, you know, the framework we've been using has uh, four major components or pieces to the community health needs assessment. And one of them is a perception survey, which really answers the question, what do you, the people, uh, feel like our major strengths and weaknesses are? Uh, the one thing that keeps popping up year after year after year, and you've seen it, surely in a photo, is that the natural beauty is something that we see is uh, one of our strengths. And so if you could imagine, um, and you should come up and try this, you wake up, and look out the window, and when you see mountains and glaciers and a spruce forest, I, I, you get this feeling that you're in vacation mode every day. And so that's kind of 
that's a great way to start the day. So that, that's simplifying it. Um, but also in terms of weaknesses or areas that we can improve, the past two or three community health needs assessments, the, the perception of substance misuse has, has risen to the top. Um, so uh, an example across sector collaboration and how we've kind of looked at public health 3.0 or operationalizing it locally is that the community health needs assessment feeds or informs a community health improvement plan, which um, we asked the community, what do you folks want to do about this? And our current community health improvement plan has two components. Um, one is a resilience coalition. And the second one is an opioid uh, task force or all things addiction is what it's called currently. And so these are folks uh, that come from different areas, have different kinds of uh, professional backgrounds, but they all are in alignment and, and their goal uh, to improve this really complex social issue. That's really very, very interesting to think about that evolution and all of those things. Your resiliency certainly has been even though maybe when it was initially brought forward as an issue, maybe for very, very different circumstances, certainly I think with COVID and all that we've experienced, it's certainly critical um, today. So, um, so it sounds like some things that, there have been some really long-term themes that have sort of driven the work and probably shaped some of the partnerships that you're involved in too, I bet. Yeah, for sure. And we see some patterns too. Uh, you know, like access to care is a really big one. In, in our state, uh, you know, like Texans, they feel rightfully that their state is big and, and it is, but Alaska is about three times bigger and with much less of a population. So we're about 730,000 people, which means we have about 1.2 square miles per person. <laughs> that means we've got a lot of space, but it also means it's a challenge to get to healthcare. The average Alaskan travels 150 miles to access healthcare. So that's something that we see persist through time and also pops up obviously during COVID-19. The other kind of pattern uh, we see is that health literacy is a challenge. And I think that this is something that's not new. And I think that it's something that it's gonna take us a long time to, um, to find some creative successful solutions to. But when thinking about literacy, um, I recently discovered, I didn't know this, I recently discovered that more than half of the folks in the United States have literacy deficits. Hmm. Literacy is tied very closely to health literacy. And I think that this is part of what we're seeing with COVID-19 or what's uh, everyone's ability or each individual and family's ability to seek out access information about health, but also be empowered uh, to match and line that up with the health literacy to make the best decisions possible for an individual and family in such a way that it improves health as opposed to deteriorate. So what's that mean for us as public health nurse practitioners is I think we're going to have to answer some really tough questions. Um, like number one, what's our role in promoting health literacy? And, and number two, how do we uh, discover how to do that and train new employees? Um, in terms of public health nursing practice in the future. I think that's such an important point, Lauren. And I wonder about, you know, as far as accessing information about health, I think maybe an element of that now that's been sort of illuminated is accessing accurate information about health. Because I think, you know, having the preparation and being able to know, you know, should I trust this source? Is this a site? or a source of health information that I can trust to make this or help me make decisions for my own health and for the health of my family. I think that's perhaps another uh, 
aspect of that that will become more and more important moving forward. Does that seem like a thing to you? Oh, yeah, I, I sure do. And, and I, I think that misinformation is something that we're a little bit more familiar with uh, in comparison to disinformation. And disinformation goes a little bit deeper and, and has a set of agendas of which I am not aware of, of for the most part. So I think that, you know, some of the challenges with misinformation and disinformation are that uh, it takes time to debunk. Um, so it, while if, if that were true, and it is, it takes time to debunk, this is already occurring, the need to debunk or otherwise face these challenges when our public health workforce is already struggling in regards to uh, funding streams and also keeping vacancies uh, filled. And so when you have a stressed uh, public health workforce, like you'll see consistently pops up in public PH wins survey, is that an already stressed uh, workforce, it's a real challenge to take in um, new employees and get them trained in the ways uh, of public health nursing. So over the next few years, I think we really got our work uh, cut out for us. I'm thinking too, that we can really uh, learn a lot from Alaska, because it seems like you have been dealing with, you know, a workforce that's had needs and, you know, opportunities, you know, always, I suspect that there are openings and the need to recruit more and more for Alaska. So I think now we're really looking at that scenario more broadly, just about everywhere. Um, so I'm wondering one thing, I'd love to know a little bit more about how all this may impact or how it may fit with the work that you're involved in. I don't know a great deal about it, but I know that you're currently involved with uh, Johns Hopkins MPH um, Bloomberg Fellowship. So could you tell us a little bit about that and how that might be shaping your work in the future? Oh yeah, sure thing. Um, you know, right before the pandemic got going, I submitted uh, an application to Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health to the, their fellowship pro program. And the fellowship really, it's called American Health Initiative. And it's really, its goal is to create and sustain a, a nationwide network of, of leaders to help um, square up, face and, and solve some really complex social issues like substance misuse and overdose, um, but also access to uh, food and domestic violence and, and other big challenges. So these are really big, complex issues that didn't pop up overnight, and, and they're probably not going to be solved in the near future. Um, so the pieces of this uh, fellowship program are, there are about 50 folks chosen per cohort, and I think I was the third in the third cohort, uh, 50 folks per year that are pursuing an MPH or, or a, a PhD in public health. And uh, it's in partnership with the school, uh, the employer, and the individual doing the, the program. And so some other pieces are not only to uh, get through and enjoy what they call world-class uh, education, which I totally agree with, it's been amazing. It's to also work in collaboration with the partnering organization um, on, a, on a project. So I'm not quite certain what my project is yet, but it will probably have something to do with staff uh, development. Um, so we have other items too, like an annual Bloomberg Fellows Summit, which actually starts tonight and, and throughout mm -hmm. the next two two days. And so that's a chance for folks to to meet. You know, and just like public health nursing at the local level, um, there's not much um, better than meeting somebody to create a relationship and to head off into the future with. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, with these evening meetings, I guess you were, I was thinking about the time challenges that might result for you uh, in Alaska, but actually the afternoon meetings perhaps rather than evening meetings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll be going to bed early tonight because <laughs> tomorrow I think I'm getting up in the four o'clock hour to be, to be, be ready for the summit that starts at five uh, my time. Wow. Okay. So then I think also, if I remember correctly, which I hope this is not incorrect, or I may be behind in terms of the, the year, is this year that you're serving as the president-elect for Alaska Public Health Association? Is that right? Yeah, that's okay. right. I, okay. I guess this initial year will be up uh, in uh, this coming January at the, uh, our annual health summit. Uh, and then I'll step into the role of uh, president of Alpha or Alaska Public Health Association. Okay, very cool. What are some of the yep. things right now that the Public Health Association there is involved with? What are some of the key, I don't know, priorities or things that you're working toward with your colleagues there? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, uh, number one, in this first year, I'm really um, learning more about what what we are and who we are. and. I really appreciate the structure there so I can have like an entire 12 months to, to learn and answer the questions. Who are we? Um, what are we doing? And also what's our history? What, what have we done? Um, but some of the our kind of major items there are offering an annual health summit. And this is kind of what you would think of as a health summit. Folks offer uh, submit an abstract and we review them. And then we have an entire program uh, based upon a theme next year's theme is the intersection of public health and public safety. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of dots to connect there. Um, so that brings together a lot of folks, not only from across the state, um, but also nationally. And then secondly, we put a call out for resolutions um, and then we'll carry them forward to the board um, for to see if we would like to support those um, as a professional organization. And, you know, as a government employee, um, when I've got my... Uh, when I'm clocked in, you know, I'm a, a state employee, and I, that means that uh, I'm here to serve everyone, um, of course. But it also means that uh, some forms of advocacy aren't aren't uh, right for me to do; wouldn't be ethical or within my role. So, being involved with uh, professional organizations also gives me an outlet for that kind yeah. of thing too. Yeah, it's so funny you brought that up, Lauren, because earlier today I was on uh, on a Zoom meeting with some colleagues uh, with MTIC. Uh, my region is region seven that brings together Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, and Nebraska. And we're talking about that very thing. We all anticipate that there will be common issues that we will uh, find ourselves immersed in once our legislative sessions begin in January. And uh, it's really difficult. And and we all walk as uh, public health practitioners who are in governmental public health, we walk a fine line in terms of what we can do uh, what is providing information and education for legislators versus what is advocate lobbying of where some challenges can arise. So one of the things that we're talking about is talking about how can we better prepare uh, and support colleagues from other sectors, other, other areas, so that they can help to be the uh, advocates, the allies, the champions for public health. Because you know, certainly I think what we've seen emerge in the last 18 months with COVID and some of the negative uh, light that's been shown upon public health. I think it's going to be really important for us to 
call upon others to help to um, reframe perhaps public health and maybe harken back to some of those things that people saw as, you know, real positives. You know, public health has done some pretty remarkable things uh, over its history and has had some incredible successes. And while certainly not everything has gone right, or as we would have preferred it go during COVID, there still have been a lot of successes. So I think, you know, preparing and bringing along our colleagues who can help us share that, tell that story and communicate that more widely is really going to be important. If it's only coming from us, it sounds perhaps a little bit self-serving, but if others can share that message too, then I think it can perhaps be more effective. Do you see that in, in your area or your practice, Lauren? Oh yeah. Yeah. To be sure. You know, the, the thing is you were sharing that that popped into my head is, it, you know, public health to a certain degree, but really public health nursing to a large degree. Um, like I was saying, we were really perceived as the, the people that give shots, um, you know, seven, eight years ago. And so I've been working, we have been working on that for a long time, but then COVID hit. And what that meant for us is that uh, we were public facing more than ever. Um, so before COVID hit, I used to be on the radio like once a year and I wouldn't even show up uh, to the station. I would take it by telephone so I could have my two screens and I could have all my info laid out, really nervous. And I'd still get nervous to get on a podcast or radio. But, uh, but the point being is I didn't have those skill sets um, and I certainly didn't have the training that, you know, in the world of public health nursing, that's what's very much like throw, throw the nurse in there, go, go get it, which is kind of, that's in our DNA. Um, we tend to like flex and be able to discover skill sets as we need them based upon community needs. But then COVID hit. And then, so I made a very conscious decision. I was like, oh boy, this could be a very long road. And there's going to be a lot of opportunities, especially uh, change. Um, so if I don't grab these opportunities, and if we don't, they're going to pass us by. Mm -hmm. So I made a big uh, personal professional decision at that time. It's been almost two years ago now to say yes to everything. So for two years now, I've been saying yes, yes to every radio, yes to every interview. Um, so I've really leaned into that to try to develop these skills that I clearly didn't have uh, before the pandemic. That's really pretty phenomenal. I think that there are others that probably would say, wow, that's great that you did that, but I would be terrified to do that. So do you have any advice after this experience of two years that could perhaps cause people to feel a little less trepidation in that um, media work? Oh, yeah, sure. I guess I would say number one is... Um, It'd be real good to consider upfront uh, to be committed and open to receiving feedback and input. So, how, what what it, what do I mean? What does that look like? Is I would say ask for it. You know, each person that you work with, especially the people that you work with in an intimate space, like within a public health center, ask them constantly um, for feedback and make it very welcoming and be ready to incorporate it. Um, I guess I would say number two, which is kind of similar, would be. Have someone that you can talk to in a very honest and vulnerable way about the skill sets that you're trying to tune in and, uh, and then ask them for feedback too. So there's not exactly a guide for uh, public speaking for the public health nurse. Um, there's probably some tools out there, but, but also in line with adult learning theory, um, maybe there's not much better than jumping in there and getting experience. And I guess I would say third and lastly is that 
you know, the thing about public health nurses, one of them is that we live with the people that we serve. So these are people that are already standing behind you in all that you do. So just know that, you know, when you're speaking on the radio, um, they care about you, you know, and they're listening for your message. And when you stutter or you don't have the words, they don't even hear that. So just know that they're there to support you. That's a really great point. I think sometimes as nurses, we forget that we have been for, I don't know how many years running now, the most respected profession. You know, people really do, I think, uh, accept and believe messages when they hear them from public health nurses. So that's probably something we need to really take to heart and really think about how we can be even more effective with that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that comes with the, the, that big giant responsibility too of, uh, when, when we do speak, uh, it kind of needs to be right or right to the best of our ability. So what comes along with that, that I, um, really discovered, um, up front was, you know, to say, I don't know. Um, and then also look into crisis risk communication skills, because there's some really important points there, um, to highlight when you're speaking, especially regard in regards to something that's quickly evolving. So sitting where you're sitting, Lauren, uh, what do you see in 10 years from now? Will you still be um, in Homer, perhaps? Thoughts about where you might might be at that point? Oh, wow. Oh, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I guess it, in my life, uh, how I've tried to structure things in the past 10 or 12 years is uh, my personal life comes first and then my professional life. And a big part of that for me in the past seven, eight years has been uh, where I live. You know, so I live at the end of this 1.6 mile trail and I live in this cabin that's off grid and I'm out, you know, harvesting my own wood and water. And I'm highlighting this because these are the things that constantly nudge me into movement and interacting with my natural environment. So it keeps me happy, you know, and it keeps me healthy to the degree I am today. So I don't, uh, sometimes I think about what would life be like if I moved to Anchorage or Fairbanks or made another move. But uh, from today's perspective, I think uh, I'll probably be here for a while. I'll probably move on at some point. But today I'm happy because like I was saying earlier, I get up, you know, and when it's daylight out and I look out the window and I look through the spruce forest and see glaciers and mountains, I feel like every day is a vacation. And that's what that means is my quality of life is really, really um, high right now. And that's really important too, when thinking about how can I open up and explore ways of improving professionally? So if I'm in a good spot, then I'm positioned well to do well. And that positions me well to support the new employees that are coming on. Employees come and go, um, but sometimes they make moves within the section, you know, and take take on promotions. And then sometimes folks go back to the lower 48. But a, a pattern that we have in Alaska is after someone's been employed with the section um, and then they leave to go home to lower 48, they'll, they'll oftentimes come back and, and that feels good to support them in that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and those things that you just described about your morning and where you wake up and what you see and be working and living in concert with the environment around you, I think all of those things are really important lessons for us, especially as we've struggled these last couple of years and tried to help people find ways to be more resilient, that term we've used over and over and over. Uh, but it really is true. I think that the things that nourish you as an individual certainly uh, 
enable you to maintain your practice and to be, you know, a, a strong, competent public health professional. So, yeah, and I think we need to do better too about uh, hiring a more diverse um, of public health workforce and public health nursing workforce. Absolutely. You know, like I'm a very privileged white man. I've got great parents I'm very close with, um, and they're doing well. And I have a brother who I'm close with; he's doing well. And that's not the case with everyone, and that's certainly not the case with all the families within the communities that I that I work with. Um, so we need uh, to have you know, diverse set of folks that we're working with in order to provide the most culturally competent and otherwise appropriate services to the communities that we serve. Excellent, important point. So are there things perhaps that we haven't touched on yet, Lauren, that you think might be uh, important to share regarding your perspectives on public health, public health nursing, particularly from your vantage point there in Homer? Yeah, you know, a couple things, I guess, that I've been thinking about over the course of the last two years is that, you know, as we've been nurturing these employees uh, to do the work, uh, the past two years has been pretty much all COVID. So they're not getting experiences with tuberculosis, uh, other vaccine preventable diseases, um, things like domestic violence or obesity prevention. Um, and then also uh, less experience with uh, uncovering uh, the rest, you know, so what are the systems or uh, community-wide interventions or those things that impact health equity or what's our role in that? So I think that one of the challenges is that there's a certain proportion of our um, staff that COVID is all they know. But I think that the, the good pieces of that are um, they know it well, you know, you know, just think about if we uh, had the approach to tuberculosis, like we do COVID, it might be a different story. And so what I mean more specifically is not only are we uh, managing things like diagnostic tests and access to treatment and case managing, um, but nowadays with COVID, we're having these things like echoes. So we get several folks from cross-sector backgrounds and professions on the call at the same time that are looking at answering the same question. Um, and the, the audience or the active participants are the general population. So that's something that we've been trying to do for years as public health nurses, but COVID is, is what made it happen. So more, more specifically, you know, it, as we move into the future, I think we have some really good opportunities to answer the questions, how do we incorporate all core competencies of public health and public health nursing? And how do we um, you know, get our new folks um, interested in, in, in discovering what the scope and standards of public health nursing uh, practice are? Because a lot of these folks, you know, Eventually, COVID's going to calm down, and we're going to get back to broadening our services eventually. And what that's going to mean is we're going to need to revisit our service delivery and, and how we go about making these, uh, providing these services. And this means some of our newer employees are, are going to be on these work groups that are going to answer the question, um, how do we do this, or, or what do we do now? So a, a real challenge with the core competencies are they're complicated. It's very long. You, you know, if, if we choose to just, 
you know, highlight 10 of them, then we miss out on the rest of the package deal. And so what I'm kind of left with is this like really stimulating, fascinating question is um, how do we get folks to advance um, their public health nursing practice faster than I did? <laughs> you know, you know, my journey nowadays began in 1997. And I would really like to get folks started off faster than, than uh, you know, it took me probably 20 years to start connecting the dots. Um, but if we can get folks to start connecting the dots within their first couple of years, I think we'll be setting the stage uh, to leaning into health equity and perhaps social justice. You know, it sounds like there's a thesis or dissertation in there too, right? There you have it, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe. I think you're right. Well, Lauren, I want to say thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. Your, your, your insights about public health, your lessons learned in Alaska uh, are, I think, a phenomenal source of um, inspiration to uh, all of us, not only as public health nurses, but as uh, practitioners of public health in general. So thank you so much. Thanks, Shirley. You know, I just want to give special thanks because, you know, throughout the years, you've, you've kind of always been there and you've been super accessible. And I think that really makes a difference as we kind of look at where we're at today and where we might be headed in the future. So these kinds of connections really couldn't be where we're at today without connections like that. And special thanks to the Share Public Health Podcast and the Midwestern Public Health Training Center. Thanks so much. Thank you again, Lauren. That means so much. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Share Public Health. And special thanks to our guest, Lauren Carroll. I'm Shirley Orr. It's been my honor to be your host for this episode. I'd like to thank Melissa Ricklin for audio production and support and to Casey Ginn for production assistance. This podcast is supported by a grant from the Health Resources and Services Administration. A transcript and evaluation for this episode is available at mphtc.org 